This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. I get asked a lot about how much money an architect makes. And without understanding all the parameters, that's like buying a car by the pound. I spend a fair amount of my time discussing the architectural marketplace within my own office and with people like Andrew. We discuss things like where can we find value? What's the going rate based on skill set and experience? How badly do we need this spot or that spot filled? If you're curious, like pretty much everyone else is, today is the show for you. Welcome to episode 124, Show Me the Money. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're going to be talking about money, salary specifically, and a handful of considerations that exist just in the periphery of this topic. Save something for the end that has to do with other forms of compensation. But mostly this is, this is a money show. <laughs> yeah. So we have a couple big kind of chunks that we're going to bite into. And to start this conversation off and get just right into it, let's talk about the current market that is out there. I will tell you from my experience, especially over the last, say, year and a half, almost two years, it's extremely cutthroat out there, if I'm being just blunt. Yeah, pretty crazy too. Wild times. Wild, wild west means it's also very cutthroat, I would imagine. Well, there's such a demand for people. Mm -hmm. So they had that during the pandemic. Everyone was like, well, I don't know if this is what I actually want to do for my life anymore. And they're thinking end of days. So... We didn't get hit by that sort of thing too much, but we probably had about five people in our office, which is probably just under 5%, leave to go do, like, somebody always wanted to live in Hawaii, so they quit their job so they can go live in Hawaii and find a job. Oh, wow, yeah. Another guy wanted to go work for this firm in New York. That was his dream, so that's what he did. Hmm. So there were a handful of people that we lost. They were like pandemic casualties, just kind of, yeah. well, this is my moment to find out what's going on. But the number of, I get a lot, I guess because of my position, I get maybe at least one email a day or five average per week from recruiters saying, I got the perfect candidate for you. <laughs> it's a little exhausting, but like one of the young women that has worked from with me for the last, I don't know, it's coming up on three years. They started calling her at her desk. Wow. At times I want to ask the receptionist, can you like find out who's calling before you just put these people <laughs> <laughs> Can you ask who it is first? Yeah. And what was interesting is it wasn't just recruiters. It started to be marketing people or recruiters that actually are employed by a company. So it wasn't like a freelancer. You know, a lot of the recruiters are just out there and they're just casting lines into the architectural yeah. pool to see what, see if they can hook somebody. Sure. These are people like, oh, they work at firm X and they're like, okay, we'll go see if you can't call people and say, hey, why don't you just come over here and see what we got going on? Oh, wow. I'm sure you're perfectly happy where you're at, but, but. Wow, that's interesting. From another firm. That's from another firm. That's pretty bold. It is bold. And, you know, at Boca Powell, we kind of have a policy. It's not written down, but we just kind of all go, you know what? I'm not going to call your company and try to steal your employees. Yeah. And the expectation was, don't do it to us and we won't do it to you, even though we don't do it to people. But some of the slightly larger firms here in Dallas, they 100% are doing that. Wow. It's because they need bodies. Everybody needs bodies. I don't know what, ha I don't know where everybody went. Well, talk about that. Like you lost some from kind of attrition during the pandemic, but there was also a lot of firms that actually 
shut down depending on what their market sector was and what they were doing. I mean, I know a lot of hospitality-driven firms that were like completely gutted because that was all they did. And then when that whole thing went on freeze, they weren't doing any more work. What happened to those employees then? They had to go get a job somewhere else, though. I mean, they had to go find a job somewhere. It's not they could ride out the pandemic unemployed. They went get a job in a different industry, probably, or a different field. Mm. Just kind of like the, because that's the other reason why there's there's a little bit of that gap in that, what, I think is at this point, the five to seven or something like that, because the economy was bad Yeah, about that long ago. And so when people got out of school and they could get a job in architecture, they went somewhere else into a different industry. And now we're missing that. There's a gap in there for that time period of experience. You know, I have that exact same five to seven years written down later as an example, but it's been that way my entire career. Doesn't matter. 1992, everybody wanted five to seven years. 1998, five to seven. 2004, five to seven. I mean, it's always been that way. Yeah. I feel like right now, though, it's like three to five. Everything I see is like three to five, three to five, three to five. Yeah. That's what they want. Yeah. I mean, I would take, I don't know if that's a reflection of the five to sevens aren't there. So we'll, we'll cast our net a little wider. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And we've talked about this internally. We, one of the guys I work with, there was a, a period of time when he was just advocating, I don't want to hire anybody right out of school because what's happening is we're getting them, we're training them up right when they get awesome. That's when they leave. They leave. Right. Not because they're unhappy with us, but because they want to see what else is out there. Yeah. Like how, It's different. I just want to change a pace. So why don't we get those people after they've got that out of their system? Yeah. It doesn't really, it just doesn't work out that way. I feel like that's an impossibility, though. Like, you can't do that. <laughs> it is an impossibility. Yeah. So staying on the current market, because of our size, and I brought it up earlier, we work with a handful of recruiters. You know, when you do that, it's kind of a mixed bag, really, because literally every recruiter I speak with, they always think they have their hands on the most amazing future Boca Pal employee that has ever existed. <laughs> of course they do. Yeah. And I'm not even sure that they vet them sometimes. It seems that way. But if you didn't know this, so recruiters get paid a percentage and that percentage when you're a firm like ours, we work with specific groups and we negotiate what that percentage is. But they get a percentage of the person's salary that they are placing. Mm -hmm. So it's in their financial best interest to get you, the candidate, the most money possible. You know? Sure. And it's like working on commission, essentially. I mean, that's kind of exactly what it is. So it's exactly what it is. And we get people coming in and they're like, okay, we charge 15% of the place salary up to 25% of the place salary, which that's a huge number. That's like a huge number. <laughs> that is. I mean, if you think about it. Well, you know, it's funny. So one of the things that I did as a member of the leadership council in our office was I looked at how much money we spent paying out recruiter fees and I justified paying AI membership fees to everyone in the office who wanted to get involved. I was like, we paid this much money. I could get 20 people could join the AIA for that much money. And if we get one employee from that, like it's a benefit to the firm because now they can go work on soft skills. They can meet other people. Yeah. Grow their network that get people might come to get a job anyway. You know, I mean. That's right. Yeah. And one of the things I used to tell people all the time, one of the great things when you're a young person about getting involved in the AIA is you're surrounded by other people and other firms. And you get to see if people do what they say they're going to do. And if they are who they say they're like, you find out through volunteer committees, who's awesome mm. and who's less awesome. Yeah. Like really quick. Yes. The number of conversations when people go, hey man, what do you got going at your office? 
And you tell them, they're like, that sounds pretty good. You ought to come check it out kind of thing. And they're like, I think I will. We also bumped up our internal finder's fees. Hmm. So now you get a couple grand if you say, hey, you come check out our scene. And that person comes and checks out our scene and we hire them. I mean, there's like real money. Hmm. This whole thing is, it's been incentivized. Yeah, that's pretty nuts. Right? Yeah. So one of the things I think about is since the recruiter is motivated to get you the most amount of money possible, every now and then I go, are they artificially driving up salaries in the market? And then I shut that down pretty quick because I go, for sure, for sure they are. But then if firms are willing to pay that, then I guess that's what the market is. Yeah. It's like, just because you think it's, it's too much, but people are paying it. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right though. They would have a hard time doing it if, if the market wasn't there. If there wasn't the ability to pay that or people were willing to pay it, they wouldn't be able to arbitrarily drive it up because people wouldn't be getting paid that. If they say, oh, well, you need to make $450,000 with three years experience. Well, if nobody pays that, then they can't really. Right. But it's not moving the needle. But if somebody starts to pay it, then well, okay. But yeah, but then you, you know. go, well, that's what the market is. If people are willing yeah. to pay it, that's the market. Yeah, for sure. However, we're in an interesting position because of right now, the needle is definitely in, in the employee camp. They have a lot more leverage. They have a lot of leverage. Oh, yeah. All the power. I don't think it's going to be that way for too much longer, to be honest with you. Like we had a guy in our office and he was a good guy. And we were going through the process of adjusting all these salaries and and he got a job offer. Some recruiter cold called him and said, hey, we're going to pay you a billion dollars. Come over here. And he's like, well, that's like a real number. And they're like, this is a real number. $11 billion. <laughs> $11 billion. Well, he came to us and said, hey, you know, I got an offer from another firm and they're like looking to pay me a lot more. So we went and looked at him and said, well, we really like you. And this is what the AA compensation survey says for like the top quartile. And then we'll give you a little bit more. And he went back to the recruiter. And those people came back with the biggest number. He's above upper quartile for his experience. And they paid him something like $35,000 more than that. And we said, look, as your friend, because we do like you, we do care about you. We'd love for you to be here. And we'd like for you to come back if things don't work out. But you got to understand that is a crazy number. (laughs) Yeah. And if things are going great and they're in a spot of, absolute desperation so they're paying that sort of money because they need people that badly you got some jeopardy on your hands if the market changes at all just to be aware but it was such a big chunk of money and he just had a kid to where he goes well oh yeah i'm gonna sow hay while the sun shines <laughs> you know what oh, yeah. i couldn't blame him i mean that was a lot of money getting while the getting's good yeah yeah, yeah good for you so let's talk a little bit about how do we determine how much we want to pay and that really comes down to where do we get our data? Do, do you think, though, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you about that question, though. Do you think it's more about how much you want to pay or how much you have to pay? I know it's semantics, but I, it's, I think it's more about what you have to pay. It's a little bit of both, I think. <laughs> this is a bit yeah. of both. I mean, because we have a bag of money and I can't keep pulling. I mean, when it's empty, it's empty. Yeah. yeah it's just the reality yeah. of it. So there's a lot of places where firms like the one I work at gets their information. And I go, let's just go through a couple of these. So if you're curious, you go, most of these assets are readily available for you to spend your time dialing through to find out maybe what the marketplace says that you should be worth. Yeah. So the 800 pound gorilla, really, for most firms, certainly ones that are my size, is the AIA compensation survey. 
you know, we rely on that survey as a starting point for pretty much all of our salary conversations. The challenging thing where this survey is concerned is that it isn't published every year, and the current version is from 2021, which, let's be honest, that probably means the information they collected was from the end of 2020. Yeah. And the current climate has changed drastically since Q4 2020. And I know that they've closed the survey for the 2023 report, Mm -hmm. but I don't know when it's coming out. It's not out yet. I participate in that survey. I mean, I've been doing that for years Mm -hmm. when I had a firm. And I mean, I know you'd say that, I mean, I used that too when I was a small firm. I used the same thing. I would get that report because if you do it, you can get it for free. But the survey just closed like at the end of March. March 24th. Yeah. To fill it all out. So my guess is it's probably going to be in the fall before it comes out. Yeah. So you go, that's that's a couple of years and things are so different now mm-hmm. than when that last one, we kind of have a little, I don't know, you squint your eyes a little bit and you have to rely on some additional kind of information to tell you if this is what it should be, or is it a little high, is it a little low, is it right on, like, where are we at? So the thing that makes that compensation report, for those people who haven't looked at it, it's huge. I mean, it's, it's gargantuan. And they break it down into a million different categories. So they'll break it down by area, like region, like these states, the southwest states, the northeastern stuff. They'll break it down to big chunks like that. That's how you would buy it. You buy it in those chunks if you're going to buy it. I don't know. When we uh, get it, we get all of it. Yeah, I know. The one we get is 100% of it. And I doubt that we would pay to get the Northeast regional information. Yeah. So to get the whole thing, it's actually, I'm looking at it right now, it's 415 bucks. Yeah. But as a, as a member, you get 40% off of that. But then each individual section is about 250 for those regions, which are, I'm assuming they're four to six state regions or something like that, depending upon where it's at. So what is that? I don't know. 250 so $125 or something if you're a member to get your region. Yeah. Probably. If you don't participate in the survey. If you participate in the survey, then you get copies for free. Yeah, which I'm pretty sure we participate. But the thing is, yeah. if you're a firm like us and we have we have offices in four different cities, yeah, they're not all in the same region, even though most of them, three of them are. It only takes two regions for you just to go and just get the whole thing, even though you don't, yeah, for you, sure. you don't use 98% of it. However, yeah, for sure. they break it down into... Not just like, hey, this clump of states, but I can go down to Texas. I can go down to Dallas Metroplex. I can go down to just Dallas. I can also cycle it through firms with a certain amount of billing, firms of a certain total number of employees. I mean- Employees, yeah. There's so many different ways that you can break it down. Yeah. Ones that have engineering as part of the company or not. Those that have Mm -hmm. an interiors group. I mean, there's so many different ways of looking at it. Yeah. And I put this together for my own company. Yeah, so I have a spreadsheet that has everybody's salary. It has what category we have them assigned to. You know, like, are they architect one, two, or three, or yeah, whatever their architectural associate, whatever it is, license, non-license, all the different categories, title slash position, whatever. You want. Right. So I have their category put in there. I also have their total amount of experience at Pocapal, the total amount of experience, all inclusive. And then we end up saying, here's their salary. Here it is relative to median and upper quartile. And it tells me percentage differences and like, where are we at? And I can look as a user group and go, oh, our project architects at this level, we are paying them 14% above upper quartile. So maybe we're doing pretty good. So there's lots of different ways that I kind of categorize it so that when we all get together as a group, 
We put our recommendations together and the owners go, okay, here's what the raises are going to be. They've got a ton of Mm -hmm. highly coordinated, organized information to work from. And it's a lot of effort. And now I maintain it constantly as opposed to, oh, it's almost that time. So I'll take one period of the year and just fix it. Mm -hmm. But then if you're a candidate and you don't want to pay that kind of money. Yeah, no. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the AI also has a salary calculator. Yes. And we can put the link in there, but it's easy to find. And one of the things that's important to note, it does not get as granular as the whole report gets. Yeah, no, that calculator is only by region. That's about it. Yeah. You can get the overall mean for whatever your position is in the whole country, and then you can break it down by those seven or eight regions. That's about as far as it goes. That's far as far as go. For all the various positions. Well, they also, this is kind of a hard thing to kind of work around or even know because that salary calculator lists your total compensation package, not just your paycheck. So that includes your base pay plus any additional cash compensation plus the value of all your benefits. And I can tell you from years of personal experience, very few people that I interview, because I interview a lot more young people than I do people who've been around the block a few times. Mm -hmm. Hey, they never ask about their benefits. They just go, do you got them? Yeah. Okay, great. Check. Because I go, well, I'm never sick. I'm golden, right? I'm young. Everything works great on me. I never go to the doctor. No one ever thinks about the value of their benefits package as a part. They go, I got to pay rent. and My benefits package doesn't help me pay my rent. That always kind of gets distilled down into just what the salary is, which is not always the case because some firms have great packages and benefits and short-term disability provided as part of your package versus insurance versus eye care, dental. I mean, you got it, got it all. Some firms do mm-hmm. way more than others. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, but if you look, I'm, I'm looking at it now, right? The, the salary compensator gives you a base pay and it's got the percentiles of 25, 50, 75th. And then it gives you a median number for an additional cash compensation. And then down in the fine print, it talks about your total salary. And their, their idea of total salary is having a value benefits at 15% of your base salary. So are they putting that 15% in that? Nope. Nope. So it's 6886 plus 15% of that number? Plus 15% of that, plus the additional cash compensation that they list. Could be what your total salary package would be worth. There's also, you have sites like salary.com, which I don't know if you feel this way, but at least until the new compensation survey comes out, salary.com might reflect a more accurate and current position on the market. But I will tell you that I did a comparison for Architect 1, Salary.com, as far as I can tell, doesn't make a distinction between licensed and unlicensed, which the AI Mm. compensation report does. Mm -hmm. So for an architect one at salary.com, the median for someone in my part of the country was $60,886, which is about $6,000 higher than the AIA survey that is two years and one pandemic out of date. But AI considers other things that this one doesn't count. But I will say it's kind of funny. They have a button where you can click on salary and bonus. Like, how much does it change if if 60886 is my salary? What's my potential for salary and bonus? And it went up $54. <laughs> yeah. I almost think a bonus of $54, you're better off not giving somebody $54 than you are. I don't even know what that is. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> 
<laughs> so somebody be mad and go, what? Yeah. $54. Yeah. When I, especially if my salary was 60 and I'll get $54 as a bonus. Yeah. Come on. It's kind of weird. So let's put this out there too. Something that's worth considering is that since the title architect has been co-opted into the tech industry, some of these generic job placement sites will superficially show a higher salary for a quote unquote architect than what is actually in place. Yeah. Because you're a software architect or some crap. And of course there's more. Yes. That gets a little bit more money there. Sorry guys. Hate to tell you that, but yeah. Yeah. So like I went to indeed.com and that's one of the sites where they've done that because the top yeah. five companies for architects in Dallas does not actually include any architectural firms. Yeah. And that's the other problem is that when you start looking at job, searching for jobs on Indeed and you put an architect, it's a mixed bag. Yeah. There's no way to filter out actually non-architecture jobs that are software, computer architecture stuff. You can't. You just have to sift through them all. Well, and a lot of them will lump engineering salaries in. And depending on how young you are, like engineers out of school make more than architects out of school. Mm -hmm. But successful architects, non-ownership architects have higher salary possibilities than engineer have. They get there a lot quicker, but they level off sooner yeah. than we can. Another thing is I, I went to uh, U.S. News just because they have a bunch of information on it. And this I go, this is why you can't trust some of this information because U.S. News had Alabama as the state with the two highest paying cities for an architect in the United States are in Alabama. <laughs> but in contrast, ZipRecruiter had Alabama generically as a state as the 47th worst state for salary yeah. for an architect. I, but yet U.S. News has, has it the two best are in Alabama? Yeah, that's weird. It's just, it's all over the place. And I go, I don't know how much you can trust it. So what else do you do to try to get some understanding about what compensation salary should be just so you at least know that you're not insulting people and you're viable in the marketplace? Well, talking with other firm owners is one of the ways that that happens. And to be honest with you, I don't do a lot of that anymore, you know, at least since I came over to a 110 person firm. But when I was at a smaller firm, it happened all the time. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the ways the tools that I was always using to, it's not that hard to say, hey, what are you paying somebody that you just hired? Or what are you paying somebody that worked for a little bit? When you're small, for some reason, it doesn't seem to matter that much. And I don't know if it's because it's not as competitive in a sense of we're not always in hiring mode, which larger firms always are. So it seems mm -hmm. a little bit more competitive like that. And so we don't really care about, I'm asking you because I may hire somebody in a year. It, it might not be next week, which large firms maybe tend, that's the thing. But we seem to be a little bit more open about, yeah, we're paying them this, we're paying them that. Well, I think a lot of these small firms, they don't, you know, so at my last office, we were at our peak, we were 11 people and we rarely hired people. Yeah. We didn't lose people and therefore we didn't have to hire people very often. So it's not like now where I probably do, I don't know, four to six interviews a month and that's just me and I don't do all the interviews in my office. I do a good chunk of them, but there's kind of a swath that I do. And because I have that kind of density of interviews that I do, I know what people are asking for, for the different jobs. So, I mean, it's more current information. And I also have feedback from the candidates that are helping us understand what the marketplace is providing right now. We really want the best employees we can possibly get. And those people have options. People that are really killing it and doing great and have great grades. And they're like, they're really, their trajectory and their career is doing amazing. Those people have options. And so 
rarely do I interview somebody that doesn't have five more interviews to do in the next couple of days. Yeah. That happens all the time. So when they say, I've got six years experience and I want $80,000, well, chances are pretty good that that's not too far off from what the market might be paying. Mm -hmm. And when you hear that four to six times a month, you kind of go, you know, guys, I'm starting to get a sense that this is yeah. <laughs> what the market is. starting to think is. it's about 80000 It's kind of where it's at. Yeah. yeah. Occasionally, we'll get somebody that comes in and just asks for some whopper number that's like 20 grand, 30 grand, 40 grand higher than everyone else we've talked to in that position. Yeah. You know, and it's funny, the people that come in, sometimes they have different requirements. So we had a guy come in recently. He was great. We made him offer, but we wouldn't guarantee him sponsorship. He was an H-1B student. Oh. Mm -hmm. Graduate. And we wouldn't guarantee that we would- Get him a visa. Yeah. Get him a visa. And he's like, all right, I'm out for that reason. And it had nothing to do with the job, the company, the salary, none of that. Mm -hmm. Sure. Because we wouldn't guarantee that, he's like, oh, I'm going to go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. My concern with that is, because I know a handful of people that go on that path, they tend to go to firms that do that. It's like that firm owns that person. Eh, only for a little while. I mean, you're kind of committed until you go through that process. And normally that process is a couple of years. Mm -hmm. We should transition on to, we kind of already introduced it a little bit. And it has to do with what I always call golden handcuffs. And I had this happen to me once in my career. And I've, I've written a blog post about this. And we've probably talked about it in some capacity a few times before. And golden handcuffs is just basically taking a job that pays you probably more than you should be getting paid. And that's part of the motivation for you taking it. The challenge when that happens is you might be taking a job that isn't a great job, but the money is great. And so that's what drives your decision. Yeah. I mean, I hate to phrase it of being paid more than you're worth, but kind of, I mean, not, not in a bad way, but yeah, you can get yourself into a spot where the only reason you're taking a job is because the money is so fantastic. The job may not be fantastic, or it might not be any different than the one that you have, but somehow that, that extra, like that you were talking about earlier, that person that just got that outrageous number, that they just had to take it. And I assume we're getting there, but that can put you in a certain position at times. Yeah. When you jump on that golden grenade. <laughs> well, you know, so there's two pieces of advice that I have doled out with regularity on the website. And the one that pertains to today's episode is, I've said, don't ever take a job just for the money. Now, the rider to that, the kind of add-on is it has to be a lot of money, like life-changing levels of money. But even then, you're just, you know, there's that so hey while the sun shines kind of mentality that you kind of go, all right, well, I'm going to take this job. And if the marketplace changes and they're going to look at it and go, we like you, but we can't pay this amount of money. Like we're hemorrhaging. We have to make a change. And so we're going to take the highest salaries with the lowest yield and those people are going to get gone. Mm. I took a job once that fit that requirement, which is part of the reason why I have the opinion about this that I do. I stayed there for four months and then I left. And part of the reason I left so quick is I was like, this is not the kind of work I want to do. Everything about this is like, this was a bad decision. And I don't want to get used to making this amount of money because then I'll be stuck having to do this work that I don't want to do for this higher paycheck. Yeah. So in four months, I was like, yeah, I got to get out. I got to get out before my lifestyle changes. Yeah. Because that's the funny thing. I think that most people don't realize, I, I think, especially if you're, if you're younger, but I mean, you spend what you make, right? I mean, so when you start to make more, yeah, that's what you start to spend. Yeah. 
I mean, unless you're like super duper disciplined to say, no, I'm only going to, I'm making $60,000 now and I'm, somebody wants to pay me 150, I'm going to still live like I'm making 60. That takes a lot of discipline. Yeah. <laughs> in all honesty, right? To just say, all right, I'm going to pack all that away. And if you get used to it, you're like, well, I either can't change jobs or I've got to go to a place where I'm going to make that much. And I'm probably not because I'm getting really overpaid at the moment, even though I took advantage of it. But a lateral move is going to mean a pretty big pay cut, most likely. So I thought I was very clever when I originally wrote Golden Handcuffs because one of the guys that I used to work with, a guy whose last name was Golden, and he got hired to work for a firm that I worked at a couple of firms ago. And he was great, but the owners never got past the fact that they paid him more than what they thought he was able to contribute. If they were just paying him, and I'm, I'm making it up, let's say they paid him 80 and they thought they were getting this guy. And they realized, well, you're not that guy, you're this other guy. And if we we're paying you 70, then we would love you. Like, you're great. Like, there's nothing about you we don't like, but we don't think that we're getting yeah. 80 out of you. And despite the fact that he was a good fit in the office, he was a good culture contributor, like his work was solid, mm-hmm. but it they never got over it. And they, they had an ax to grind against that guy all the time. Some resentment built into yeah. it there about, yeah, we're overpaying you or yeah, whatever. Yeah, and when things slowed down, man, that was they couldn't jump on that fast enough. Got rid of him. Yeah. And I was really sad because I really liked having him in the office. And you know what I mentioned? That young woman that got a call at her desk from another company. Mm-hmm. They they said, hey, we would like to have you, we'd like to have you come over here as a project architect and salary is going to be $115,000. Why don't you just come over and check it out? And she's like, I'm not a project architect. She goes, I just got licensed. I've been out of school for a year and a half. And they're like, oh, we'll work it out. I was like, what? And she talked to me about it. Yeah. She was graciously saying, hey, clearly people want to pay me more than what you guys are paying me. Anything we do about that? So I went and had a conversation with, you know, the people that make those decisions. And we came back and we go, yeah, we can do a little something for you. But what they're offering, whack. <laughs> As your friend, I'm going to say, yeah. don't do that because you're not a project architect. Like, you don't know what you're doing. Just because you got a license now right out of school doesn't mean you're that person yet. You're amazing. You're going to be there. The question is, can you get there before they don't have the bandwidth to pay that kind of money for people who aren't quite there yet? Yeah, I had an employee of mine that left and went to a couple of other places, maybe her second or third move, after she'd only been out of school for like, yeah, two or three years, maybe three years. Somebody picked her up as a project architect. I mean, granted, she had done a lot of stuff, but I, I don't think she was at that level either, but she took it and managed to work it out. But she said she always felt a little, like she knew she was underqualified, but it was one of those things where the money was good enough and I, she was smart enough she could do it, but... And she at least had a little bit more experience than that to maybe say I'm close, but not to the point that you would expect someone as a project architect to actually have. Yeah. I think it's funny, though. I was looking at Indeed, I guess, last week. There's a lot of people that they're looking for project architects that have five years of experience, and that's it. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, that's, that seems really soon to me to be labeling somebody as a project architect. It could be the way their structure is. That's a different term than what I'm thinking it yeah. is, you know. Well, you know, it's funny. Project architect isn't a categorization or a title for a category in the compensation report. Yeah, I know. You're either architect one, two, three, or senior. One, two, three. A senior designer, like those kind of things. Project architect, I think, is a fluid kind of description 
Like, so we have people in our office that have 10 years experience and they're project architects. And we've got people that are, we're kind of breaking in as a project architect at five years, but there's somebody with more experience that's guiding them and keeping an eye on what's going on. Overseeing, yeah. Yeah. And if I'm being blunt, coming with with the background that I have, I'm PMing a couple projects right now. Like I'm doing a big office building, I'm PMing. And the guy that I'm working with, who's the project architect, he's doing stuff I have no idea how to do. I was like, man, I would never have known that. Yeah. And I go, I got 30 years experience and I can't, because I don't have any experience with that building type. That typology, sure. So for me, if I go, oh, I feel some pressure to make sure that I can step it up in all these other kind of areas so that these things that are maybe weaknesses as far as what I can contribute to the office are made up by doing other things that are of value. Mm -hmm. So if you're one of those people that is getting hired into a job and being paid handsomely to do that job and you're not quite there, there are times if the market stays the way it is, you can probably grow into that role in a way that can justify that salary. The jeopardy is when the marketplace changes and now all of a sudden they're like, they're like, oh, we got to cut salary in some way. And they're looking at your giant salary and your non-commensurate years of experience. Yeah. If you don't have enough time to grow into that role and that salary for that role. Yeah. Before the market does something crazy again. I, mean, I should say crazy. It would be a downturn. Yeah. If there was some kind of downturn. That would put you in jeopardy for sure. It's something that we talk about every now and then. And so we have a talent retention group, which supposedly I lead, but not because I was assigned the leader. I guess I just talk more than anyone else about it. Uh, I just assume share that mantle with everyone else in that group. But we talk at times about, well, what other forms of compensation can we provide? If for some reason we're thinking, it's a hard sell for me to give somebody who's got four and a half years experience, it's a hard sell for me to give them in my marketplace $85,000. So what's the pitch? What do I say? Well, this is what else we have to offer. And I'm not just talking about like bonuses or dental programs, not that sort of thing. Vision insurance. (laughs) Yes. I mean, that stuff has value for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it doesn't move the needle. It doesn't move the needle on someone who's got four and a half years experience. For most people. So I always think about when I worked in a small firm, what were the things that I really valued? Because I can tell you, I worked for for a couple of firms where I got paid peanuts, but I liked what I did because of the other things that came along with doing that job. It's part of the reason for a long time. I thought I'm a small firm guy because all the things I wanted to do, I was able to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Other forms of compensation might be opportunities. And I don't want to make this a big firm, small firm thing because it happens in our office. You know, we have a guy that's a couple years out of school and he goes to client meetings all the time and he gets to design cool buildings and he gets to present them. That's a form of compensation, him getting to do what he wants to do, Sure. him having the opportunity to present the work. Not everybody gets that. Mm -hmm. I probably have a half dozen people in my office that look at what he gets to do and go, man, I want to do some of that. And you kind of go, all right, well, this is the skill set. So part of what gets him in the room is these abilities, these traits. So that's why these doors open up. And the fact that we're able to give those opportunities to him is I don't know, for lack of a better way to describe it, I feel like it is a form of compensation. Well, it's definitely a benefit, right? You you could think of it as a benefit, but yeah. Okay, let me talk about that a little bit. Benefit versus compensation. For me, it's just like, this is what you get. You work here, these are the things you're going to get. And for me, it was 
getting out of the office, talking to owners, going to job sites, like well, all these different kind of things. If I went to a different firm, maybe I would lose some of those. Maybe I wouldn't get to go to the owners and give presentations, or maybe I wouldn't get to go to the job site on the projects that I help create. You know, maybe these are the considerations that motivate my behavior one way or another into thinking, this is a great place to work. Mm -hmm. Could I make more money somewhere else? Yeah. But I wouldn't get to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Yeah. Because really you're just talking about what can you do to motivate someone to stay in the office? I mean, I like physically staying, staying, working at your company. Stay employed. Sure. At your, at your place. Yeah. That has to be part of that consideration. And what I don't know is when you're young, you may still be figuring out those things and where they fall in your value matrix. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know yet because you don't even had the experience to do all those things to know which ones are more important to you. Like you haven't sorted that stuff out because you just haven't had the time to do it. You may think it's really important that I go on construction sites and then it turns out you hate it or something, you know, or like, I love going to owners meetings and you realize, Oh no, I don't. I, I, I I could skip those for the rest of my life and be happy. Yeah. But you've got to figure that out. It takes a little while, I think. But also even let's say if this is your first job, being able to know that you're actually going to have the opportunity to do all of those things versus none of those things should kind of weigh in into that idea of compensation or benefits or whatever, or what you're working for or where you're working at. Sure, I may make a lot of money, but guess what? I'm never going to leave my cubicle, my station. Yeah. From the time I show up to the time I walk out, like that's what I do versus getting to do other things and even leave the office to go do something. Well, yeah, for sure. If you don't know that, you certainly aren't able to put any kind of value or ascertain where it falls in your pecking list of Mm -hmm. this is what matters to me. Yeah. You kind of start from a, well, if I make more money, I can make my car payment. I can make my student loan payment. I can live in a nicer apartment. Maybe it's in a better area of town. It's closer to the office. It's easy to understand a paycheck and what its value is. It's really hard to understand. Certainly if you're in the five, seven years or less category, you may not know. Mm -hmm. And the thing I think is kind of interesting, you'd have to go back to early double digits probably since we've talked about this. And it was, I changed jobs a lot when I got out of school for a period of time. That doesn't seem to be the culture as much now as it was when I was younger. And I think maybe the internet. So when I got out of school, you couldn't go see the work that people were doing easily. Mm -hmm. I can do all kinds of research on firms now and I can find out where they're at, how many people, what does their office look like, what kind of projects they work on, what does it look like. I mean, I can start to get a pretty good idea about what a company is and what they do and what opportunities might be there for me. Yeah. You know, that's different now. If they didn't have a monograph published, you didn't know what they did, you know? Yeah. That's right. So changing jobs when I got out of school was not all that uncommon. I mean, it was actually kind of recommended that, hey, you should work a place or two or three within the first couple of years you're out of school so you can have an idea of what type of work you want to do. Mm -hmm. There was no specialization. That doesn't seem to be the case anymore. People come out and they're like, I want to do this type of work. This is where I want to live. These are the firms that do it. Boom, done. Mm, interesting. I mean, I still feel like it's there's a lot of change, but that's just from my perception. Yeah, but they're not going from like big to small. They're just going like, hey, this firm does corn shell office buildings, and I'm going to go to that firm that does corn shell office buildings. That's possible. Yeah, I mean more like big firm to little firm or little firm to big firm or residential to commercial or commercial to uh-huh. hospitality or healthcare. Like yeah. 30 years ago, you had no idea what you may want to do. Everything was wild west when you graduated. Mm-hmm. And now 
you come out of school, especially if you go to like a 4-2, they'll come out with a healthcare certificate. This is what I focused on. Yeah. And they're like, no, and I'm going to a healthcare firm. Yes. I don't think there's a lot of like five-man healthcare, healthcare firms for, yeah, out there. Yeah, not a lot. So it, it kind of sets the path that you're going to be going on. So other forms of compensation should always be part of the conversation. We brought this up in the last episode, at least I thought we did. It had to do with when you go on an interview, asking people, what am I going to be doing? That should be a question that people ask. Like mm-hmm. Trying to formulate some sort of understanding in your head about when I show up, what other forms of compensation are available to me? Now, don't say it that way. <laughs> you're not going to get the answer that you're looking for, not because they're trying to hide it from you, but I don't think that unless you're me, you may not be thinking of it that way. But if you go, do I get to go to meetings? Do I get to go to job sites? Like These are kind of questions that maybe maybe should be in the rotation yeah. when you go for interviews. I mean, I know for me, it would always be about flex time of some kind. And it's just because I still have a kid. It's in school and stuff, and I want yeah. to be able to go. If I want to leave to go to a volleyball game, I want to be able to do that. And if I can make it up some other time or do whatever, like I need that kind of flexibility in my life because of those kinds of things. I think even that that idea about not necessarily working from home, but flexible time that allows me to do the things that are important to me and my family. If somebody said, well, no, you work eight to five, that's your time and that's when it is. And if that's it, I would be like, man, not for me. Not that there's a lot of firms out there like that, but there are firms out there like that, that that's how they operate. So I mean, that's an important thing to ask to me. Yeah, I think you nailed it on the head. That is something we hadn't really brought up yet. And it's, it is things like flex time or, you know, work from home used to be a really, really big deal. All the candidates we talked to, that was work from home was like one of the first things out of their mouth. Yeah. And what we found, and this is true even outside of the architectural profession, that a lot of the companies had like really generous work from home. They're like, mm, come in, don't come in. We don't care. You can work from home all the time. Or you can come in one day a week. Pick what day you want. Those type of policies all seem to be walking back. A lot of the companies that I'm aware of are reducing their work from home policies from what they were to something less than that. Mm. But it's different by market. So work from home, I'd say in the last three, four months, is almost even a non-topic in the interviews that I've been having for the Dallas office. Mm. For our Austin office, it's probably one of the top three things that gets brought up. Interesting. Yeah. Like it, it's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's just based on what happens in that area or whatever. And But yeah. Grant, I think if I lived in, I don't know, Chicago or Minneapolis or something, I'd want to work. I'd want a robust one so when it was like cold as all get out, I could stay and work from home and not have to get out <laughs> in it, you know? Yeah. That is interesting. And I'm interested to see if there's a change over time, even still, that like, I know it was such a big deal and everybody wanted to work from home all the time and da da da. But I feel like that was kind of an overcorrection from pandemic stuff, but everybody just had gotten so used to it. But Mm -hmm. as we ease back into it, it's just normal. Yes, you have the option to do that and capabilities are so much easier. But I wonder if people are going to start to realize that it's not that great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's nice when I want to do it, but I don't want to do it all the time. I don't know. Maybe not. I think it'd be interesting to see how that plays out in the next several years about, is it really something that's important? Well, okay. So here's kind of an, and this isn't a work from home episode, but the conversations that I've had with people suggest that firm culture is suffering in the groups that have high work from home counts. Sure. Yeah. So if you're coming in two days a week and you're out three days a week, those firms are all kind of coming back and saying, man, our culture, we're definitely feeling it. Yeah. Even in our office, and we do not have a super robust, we're two days a month. That's what you get. Mm. 
it's really meant for like, oh, something's going on. So I'm going to work from home. Not a, I need to get away from these people. Yeah. But we saw that our culture was being impacted by it. And the mentality of it was if we had like a fun Friday event, a lot of people would use that day for their work from home day. It's almost like this idea that I have a job. I come up at this time. I leave at that time. That's what you get. It's like, I don't want to hang out here any more than I have to. Mm -hmm. And so the work from home, if we're not making people be in the office, people are like, well, I don't want to be here then. And it definitely, if I ran a matrix of who uses it, it was always the people that were most vocal about how important work from home was for them. Yeah. And I go, there's got to be a way to accommodate those folks because they're good employees. And you go, well, okay, well, how do we get them what they want, what they need that makes them happy? But then on the other end, how do we make the culture in the office robust? And how do we make collaboration and teamwork? And how do we make those things be what they were pre-pandemic? Again, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, but there's a funny correlation to that in studio culture in education because it's the same kind of thing where nobody really hangs out in studios like we did anymore. And there's a there's a loss of culture and collaboration and sharing and all that kind of stuff that doesn't really happen anymore when people are in class and then once class is over, they leave and they do all their work from home. And there's no sort of really yeah. cross-pollination of great ideas and exchanges and all that kind of stuff that used to happen when you were in studio all the time because that's where all your stuff was. Yeah, I've felt that way about studio for a long time. And I don't know if it's because computers made that possible. Like Pretty much. Laptops. Laptops made that possible. Okay. Well, look, I think we've been talking about this long enough now to where we kind of hit a couple main categories. And if you're one of the people that came in here expecting me to tell you what a dollar number was, there's too many variables. I can't, all I'd be doing was reading numbers and everyone would fall asleep. Spread, spreadsheets, spreadsheets, spreadsheets. <laughs> but the idea of what the marketplace is and where do we get the data that helps us understand like what we should be paying people based on their skill set and their experience, the ramifications of going high with the salary number versus the experience you have, discussing other forms of compensation. I think we've kind of covered it from all the different angles or at least a great number of the angles that are worth considering for somebody who's going, hey, I want to make a change, and I'm making that change, and it's financially driven. Mm -hmm. There's some resources. They'll be on the blog post that accompanies this, where you can go and look at this information for yourself, which you should do, quite honestly. Firms like mine, I don't care. You can go look at that stuff all day long because we look at it. So if you look at it and go, it says I should be making X, chances are that's what we're going to be offering you. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good for you. It's good for us. It's only when things get out of whack that things get out of whack. So, all right, you ready to get to the end of the show where we ask our question? Sure. What are we doing today? What's our format for our question today? We're going to do another this and that. Okay. So in case you've missed the explanation of the premise, I think we've only done like two of these so far. The this and that requires you to accept both things presented in the premise. And typically one thing is great and the other one is not as great. But are you willing to accept both? Sure. So you got to get the not great to get the great. So here's the question. You can fly anywhere in the world for free and you sit in the middle seat on the last row. Now, could have been worse. I debated, and maybe we should still do this. I, <laughs> I debated putting a baby on the aisle seat next to you and somebody with a weak bladder on the other side by the window. So they're always climbing over you to like, the whole point is you can get wherever you want to go, Yeah, but it's going to be an unpleasant experience. Unpleasant experience. <laughs> so the premise is I can fly anywhere I want, anytime I want. I mean, like I'm always flying for free, anywhere I want to go, right? Yes. 
but I'm sitting in the back in a not so desirable position. You know, and I don't know if this has to be a requirement, you know, because everyone's always looking for the loophole. And I'm going to say you're like one of the last person to get on. So chances are you're not getting any, you're going to have to check every bag. Mm -hmm. There's not going to be any overhead storage for your roll on by the time you in the last row middle seat. And I'm not going to say the baby's screaming and crying. He might just be like throwing goldfish on you. I don't know. (laughs) Putting his slobbery hands on your jacket. I don't, you know, I don't know what it is. Yeah. You're not going to go, oh, I'll just sleep. Doubtful. Yeah. Like, it's not going to be, again, anytime you want, anywhere you want. Don't have to pay for it. But unpleasant, however long it takes to do it. Yeah. So when I thought about this, my initial response was, sure, why not? Because normally that's my initial response. Yeah. But. Because you're easygoing. Yeah, I know. But the more I think about this, the more I think, I don't think I would take it. The middle seat's the last place I ever want to be. I get a little claustrophobic, and so sitting in the middle on a plane, like I always have to sit on the aisle because it gives me more room above my head. I can't sit by the window because I feel like I'm trapped. Yeah. And so sitting in the middle does not sound great, and then the thought of like, oh, wow, I get to fly for free, so I'm going to go to Australia, New Zealand and stuff, and that's a 15-hour flight where I'm packed in there like that. Like That is totally terrifying. And weak bladders next to you? Yeah. I, I don't know. I can't. That part I can't get past. I feel like I may not be as easygoing once I'm on an airplane. So I, I think I'm going to have to, I think I would have to pass on this one, to be quite honest. I mean, it may sound crazy, but because I mean, for short flights, fine. But I mean, short flights also, I don't really, it's not going to be that big of a deal. But yeah, I don't know. Oof, oof. The thought of sitting like that in the back, in the middle, already I'm getting, yeah, I'm getting anxious. Well, it's a no for me. As well. Yeah. And here's what I was kind of wondering. I wonder if it's because, A, I've traveled. I've been a lot of places. Mm-hmm. So, so someone goes, you can go to Paris. And I go, yeah, I've been to Paris a few times. That's nice. Mm-hmm. Do I want to like suffer through all this? Because I think that if you're a younger person, you're like, be way more tolerant. You're like, yeah, one, because I don't get the money to pay for that. And I'd be able to go on these trips. And sure, I'm going to be inconvenienced for a couple hours or 10 hours, whatever it is, to be there. And I don't have to pay for it. Something I wouldn't be able to do anyway. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people would say yes to this and you just wouldn't make it work. And you're just, it's just what it is. But at my age now, I don't think I could do it. I think I would show up cranky. I wouldn't like it. I wouldn't like it. Yeah, I know. I mean, I feel like it would just ruin my trip to start it in a way like that where I'm either anxious or angry or like just feeling like that. Starting the trip in this sort of like agitated state would just ruin everything. Or I'd have to go somewhere for like, three weeks because it's going to take me three days to decompress from this fight. That's so terrible. Well, even as you're answering these questions, you've got your hands in your mouth. I know. Like, right? it, and I, it, and like, I like, <laughs> I want to go, Andrew, you're going to be all, you're all mumble mouth in it. And I go, that's how much like stress this question is giving you. Yeah. I, I just don't think I could do it. Could do it. No, no. Now, if it was fly free and it was a good something and there was some other thing we talked about before, like, well, you can fly for free, but I don't know. You've got six fingers on both hands or something, you know, like, Right. Okay. Then, because I would never pick the middle seat, but putting that caveat on it pushes me over the edge. Well, here's a, here's how I know my answer. So my wife is a muckety muck over at Southwest Airlines. I can fly for free now. Yeah. I can, and I can fly on any carrier. Now, any Southwest flight, I can get on if there's a seat available. I can get on it, and they don't assign seats, so it just depends on like when I get into the border. Like I'm going to be at the end every single time. Yeah. 
for the most part. So that means the likelihood that I could be in the last row, middle seat with weak bladder and baby next to me, that happens. Pretty high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And since the pandemic, they have less flight crews. So all the flights are running full now. Mm-hmm. It's not like the good old days for a traveler where like every flight was at 60%. You could fly anywhere all the time anyway. Yeah. Now, a lot of times we can't get on flights. Like there's really almost nothing worse. I thought about modifying your question going, you're flying standby. You can fly anywhere, mm. anywhere in the world. You could get an aisle seat, it just, but you're on standby. Yeah. And what happens is maybe you'll get on that flight. Maybe you won't get on that flight. Yeah. And there have been times when I've spent the entire day at the airport because every flight is full. Yeah. Waiting to get on a flight. Yeah. And so they keep bumping me to the next one. If some pilot shows up, he's going to get that seat before I get that seat. Oh, yeah. And when she took that job, it was for the pandemic. And we we're like, oh, man, we're going to take trips all over the place all the time. We hardly ever use it. In fact, yeah. the last, say, three or four trips we've taken, we just went ahead and bought our tickets because like the inconvenience of not having a seat or wondering if you're going to get a seat and go, well, I got to be back. Yeah, for sure. It's too much. It's, it's not worth it. So if you're doing standby where there's two people or three people, that's even harder. Yeah. You're like, oh, we got two empty seats. Oh, there's three of us. Or we've got one empty seat. Oh, there's only two of us. Yeah. I don't think that would be worth it either. Yeah. I'd rather just have all the money in, in the world and then I'd pay for my flights. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Too bad that wasn't the option. I know. Okay. I think we've reached a point where I'm going to call today's show a wrap. Thank you for being with us for episode 124, Show Me the Money. We would also like to thank our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. Want to get every new episode automatically downloaded? We're available on all major podcast platforms, so hit that subscribe button and you will get notified every two weeks when we publish a superlative new episode. While you're there, please take a few moments and leave us a five-star Rainin' Benjamins rating. To get even more content, head over to lifeofanarchitect.com for blog posts, links, and info about this awe-inspiring episode and all the website has to offer. You can even add your voice and join the conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.